Chapter Twenty Three of Marjorie Dean, High School Sophomore by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter Twenty Three For the Fame of Sanford High. When Marjorie Dean went down to breakfast the following morning, it was with the feeling that her sharp answer to Mary's unexpected comments of the night before had been unworthy of her better self. Mary's reply, "'Oh, it doesn't matter,' had somehow sounded wistful rather than indifferent. To be sure, Mary had literally forced upon her the reserved stand which she had at last taken." Yet underneath her proud attitude of distant courtesy toward the girl who had once taken first place in her friendship still lurked the faint hope of reconciliation. But she had made her last advance on that memorable Christmas day when Mary had shown her so plainly that she respected the flag of truce for the day only and had returned to her former state of antagonism at the first opportunity. In the beginning it had been hard to stifle her impulsive nature, and appear courteous yet wholly unconcerned regarding her chum's welfare, but in time she found it comparatively easy. Friendship was dying hard, yet it was dying nevertheless. This thought had startled Marjorie a little as she recalled how easy it had been to be disagreeable where once it would have seemed absolutely impossible to allow those cutting words to pass her lips. It came soberly to her that morning as she walked into the dining-room that, after all, she did not wish that friendship to die. Something must be done to keep it alive until Mary was quite herself again. The faint line of concern which appeared between her dark brows deepened as this latest conviction took hold of her. As she pondered, the object of her thoughts appeared in the doorway. Mary's face wore an air of listlessness that quite corresponded with her subdued, "'Good morning, Marjorie. Good morning, Captain.' "'You look all tired out, my dear,' remarked Mrs. Dean solicitously. There was a curiously pathetic droop to Mary's mouth, which gave her the appearance of a very tired child, who had played too hard and was ready to be put to bed, rather than to begin the day's round of events. Did you dance too much? No. A peculiar little smile flickered across the girl's pale features. She wondered what Mrs. Dean would say if she told her just how she had spent her evening. Marjorie regarded Mary almost curiously. In some indefinable way she had changed. Then it flashed across her that Mary's usual stubborn expression had given place to one of distinct sadness. With a kindly endeavour toward lightening her chum's heavy mood, she tried to draw her out to talk of the party. She met with little success as Mary, in reality, knew nothing further of it than the fact that Mignon had worn a gypsy costume and that the majority of the boys invited had not put in an appearance. She was hardly prepared to describe the affair. 
She, therefore, answered Marjorie's questions in brief monosyllables and volunteered no information whatever. "'I'm going over to see Jerry Macy this morning. Would you like to go with me?' asked Marjorie after her attempt to discuss the party had proved futile. "'No, I thank you just the same. I have several things to buy at the stores, and then I am going for a walk.' I would ask you to go with me, only you were going to Jerry's. I'd love to. A touch of Marjorie's old heartiness came to the surface. But I promised Jerry I'd surely go to see her today. Perhaps we can take a walk some other day, remarked Mary vaguely as they rose from the table. I will take you both for a ride this afternoon, if you are good, volunteered Mrs. Dean. She had been observing the signs. She decided within herself that matters were assuming a more hopeful turn. Yet she had long since left the two girls to work out their problems in their own way. "'That will be splendid!' cried Marjorie. "'I should like to go,' acceded Mary almost shyly. Mrs. Dean smiled to herself and saw light ahead. The barrier seemed about to crumble. But as the days went by, both she and Marjorie grew puzzled over the change in blue-eyed Mary. She had indeed lost her belligerent spirit of animosity, but a profound melancholy had settled down upon her like a pall. Gradually it became noised about in school that Mary Raymond and Mignon LaSalle were no longer on speaking terms. Why this was so, no one knew. Mary was mute on the subject. For once, also, the French girl had nothing to say. As it happened, she believed that no one of the guests had witnessed the scene between herself and Mary, and to try to relate it, even with emendations of her own, would hardly redound to her credit. She was too shrewd not to know that the average person resents an affront against childhood. Then, too, Constance Stevens was making rapid strides toward popularity among the girls of Stanford High School, and her cowardly nature warned her to be silent. But her chief reason for silence lay in the fact that Mary had curtly informed her on the Monday morning following the party that she had seen Charlie safely home, that so far as she could learn his family did not know who had escorted him home, and that if she, Mignon, were wise she would say nothing whatever of the occurrence. Without further words Mary had walked away, but that same afternoon she had removed her wraps to another locker, a significant sign that she was done with the French girl for ever. When it came to Marjorie's ears that Mary and Mignon had quarrelled, she decided a trifle sadly that Mary's melancholy was due to the French girl's defection. She was sure that whatever the quarrel had been about, Mignon was to blame. Until then she had never quite believed in the sincerity of Mary's affection for this unscrupulous, headstrong girl, and it hurt her to see Mary take the estrangement so to heart. She said as much to Constance Stevens as they walked home from school together on the Monday following the Easter vacation. 
to marjorie the easter holidays had been a continuous succession of good times she had attended half a dozen parties given by her various schoolmates and numerous luncheons and teas to all these mary had received invitations also she had politely declined them, however, going on long, lonely walks by day and moping in the living room or her own room by night. Somehow, Marjorie confided to Constance, I never believed Mary could be so deceived in a person. But she must think a lot of Mignon, or she wouldn't be so dreadfully sad all the time. It's queer, mused Constance. I don't think she knows to this day the truth about last year. I'm sure she doesn't. Mary is really too honourable to stand by a... a person that you and I know isn't worthy of loyalty. That sounds rather hard, especially from one of the Reform Party. But I can't help it. I am quite ready to say and mean it. Mignon LaSalle hasn't a better self. She never had one. It hasn't been very pleasant for you this year, has it? Was Constance's sympathising question. It's too bad. After all the nice things we had planned. Sometimes I think it's better not to make plans. They never turn out as one hopes they will. I know it, rejoined Marjorie with a sigh. Jerry Macy says that Mary has something on her mind besides Mignon. Perhaps she is sorry that she... Constance hesitated. That we aren't chums any more, finished Marjorie. I don't think so. If she had been truly sorry, she would have come to me and said so. I thought so the day after Mignon's party. Then I heard that they had quarrelled, and I changed my opinion. There was a faint touch of bitterness in Marjorie's speech. Suppose we don't talk of it any more. I wish to forget it, if I can. It doesn't do much good to mourn over what can't and won't be changed. Did Jerry tell you that Laurie Armitage has finished his operetta? Professor Harmon is going to have a tryout of voices in the gymnasium next Saturday morning. Laurie told me himself. He brought the score of the operetta to Grey Gables last night and we tried it over the piano. The music is beautiful. It is so tuneful it lingers. I've been humming snatches of it ever since he played it for me. The rebellious princess has some wonderful songs. That clever young man, Eric Darrow, composed the libretto and thought out the plot. It's about a princess who grew tired of staying at home in her father's castle and going to state dinners and receptions, so she put on the dress of a peasant girl and ran away from the castle to see the world. She took some gold with her, but it was stolen from her the very first thing. No one paid any attention to her because she was poor and she had a dreadfully hard time. But she was so stubborn she wouldn't go back to her father and say she was sorry so she wandered on until her clothes were ragged and her shoes were worn out. Then an old woman took the poor princess to live with her and she had to work terribly hard and wait on the woman's daughter who loved nothing but pretty clothes and to have a good time. 
no one was good to her except the woman's adopted son who was left on her doorstep when he was a baby at last the princess grew so tired of it all she went back to her father but to punish her he pretended he didn't know her so she had to go away again but the woman's son had followed her and when he saw her leave the castle crying he told her he loved her and asked her to marry him she said yes because he was the only person in the world who cared for her but her father hadn't really intended that she should go away he sent his courtiers after her to bring her back to the castle she wanted to go back but she wouldn't go unless the young man went with her when he found out that she was really a great princess he said he would never dare to ask her to marry him but she said that true love was better than all the wealth in the world and she would not go back unless he went with her and so he said he would go that is where the operetta ends they sing a duet true love is best and you have to imagine what the king said there isn't so much in the plot but it is very sweet and the music is delightful finished constance i know i shall love to hear it exclaimed marjorie i do hope you will be chosen to sing the part of the princess constance flushed lawrence wishes me to have it she said almost humbly but there are sure to be others who can sing it better than i however the tryout will settle that at any rate i may be chosen for a court lady in the chorus i hope you'll be in it too i can't sing well enough laughed marjorie but i'll be there on saturday and perhaps i'll be lucky enough to get into it somehow won't it be fun to rehearse hal macy ought to have a part he has a splendid tenor voice and the crane can sing bass i can hardly wait until saturday comes i am so anxious to see who will be chosen marjorie's pleasant anxiety was shared by the majority of the girls of sanford high school the proposed operetta became the chief topic for discussion as the unusually long week dragged interminably along toward the fateful saturday even the high and mighty seniors condescended to become interested among their number more than one ambitious seeker after fame secretly imagined herself as carrying off the role of the rebellious princess and conducted assiduous practice of much neglected scales in the hope of a glory to come as the star singer of her class constance stephen's name was often brought up for discussion among her classmates as the possibly successful contestant in the tryout besides was it not lawrence armitage's opera it was generally known that the dark-haired dreamy-eyed lad had a decided predilection for constance's society rumour therefore decreed that if laurie armitage had the say constance would have no trouble in carrying off the leading role but the most determined aspirant for fame was none other than mignon lasalle with her usual slyness she kept her own counsel nevertheless she believed she stood a fair chance of winning the prize of which she dreamed for mignon could sing from childhood her father had spared no expense in the matter of her musical education 
an ardent lover of music, he had decreed that Mignon should be initiated into the mysteries of the piano when a tiny girl, and although Mr. LaSalle had allowed her undisputed liberty to grow up as she pleased, on one point he was firm. Mignon must not merely study music. She must each day practice the required number of hours. In the beginning she had rebelled, but finding her too indulgent parent adamant in this one particular, she had been forced to bow her obstinate head to his decree. In consequence she profited by the enforced practice hours to the extent of becoming a really creditable performer on the piano for a girl of her years. At fourteen she had begun vocal training. Possessed of a strong, clear soprano voice, three years under the direction of competent instructors had done much for her, and although she was far too selfish to use her fine voice merely to give pleasure to others, she never allowed an opportunity to pass wherein she might win public approval by her singing. The mere fact that the rebellious princess was Lawrence Armitage's own composition served to spur her on to conquest. Given the leading role, she believed that she might awaken in the young man a distinct appreciation of herself, which hitherto he had never demonstrated toward her. Once she had brought him to a tardy realisation of her superiority over Constance Stevens, by outsinging the latter, along with all the other contestants, she was certain that admiration for herself as a singer would blot out any unpleasant impression he might earlier have conceived of her. She had heard that the Stevens girl could sing. It was to be doubted, however, if her voice amounted to much. Another point in her favour lay in the fact that Professor Harmon was a close friend of her father. He would surely give her the preference. But while she dreamed of triumphantly holding the centre of the stage before a spellbound audience, her rival-to-be, Constance Stevens, was seriously debating with herself regarding the wisdom of even entering the contest. Of a distinctly retiring nature, Constance was not eager to enter the lists. On the Friday afternoon before the tryout, she was still undecided, and when the afternoon session of school was over, and she and the five girls with whom she spent most of her leisure hours were walking down the street, headed for Sargent's and its never-failing supply of sweets, she was curiously silent amid the gay chatter of her friends. "'I suppose you girls know that our dear Mignon has designs on the princess,' announced Jerry Macy with the elaborate carelessness of one who gives forth important news as the commonest everyday matter. "'Mignon!' exclaimed Marjorie Dean in amazement. "'I never knew she could sing.' "'She thinks she can,' shrugged Muriel Harding. "'Goodness knows she ought to. She has studied for ages.' I'm surprised to hear that she is going to try out, considering it's Laurie's operetta. You know just how much he likes her. She knows, too. Who told you, Jerry? quizzed Susan Atwell. The way you gather news is positively marvellous. Was it Big Brother Hal? No, he doesn't know it. If I told him, he'd tell Laurie, and Laurie would promptly have a spasm. One of the girls in the senior class mentioned it to me. 
Mignon really sings well, put in Irma. Don't you remember the time she sang at Muriel's party two years ago? She has been studying ever since. She must have improved a good deal since then. Oh, I've heard her sing more than once, said Jerry Macy. But I don't like her voice. It's, well, it isn't sweet and sympathetic. Neither is she, put in Susan with her customary giggle. Wait until Connie sings at the tryout. Then someone can gently lead Mignon to a back seat, predicted Jerry. It would give me a good deal of pleasure to be that someone. I don't think I shall enter the tryout, remarked Constance, flushing. Why not? was the questioning chorus. Oh, I don't know, only I just don't care to. If I do, someone might say I went into it because... She hesitated and the flush on her cheeks deepened. Because you expected Laurie to choose you, you mean, finished Jerry. Yes, that is what I meant, admitted Constance. Of course, I know there are other girls who are better singers than I, and that I couldn't possibly be chosen. Still, I'd rather not go into it at all, unless I could just be in the chorus. You are a goose, a nice dear goose, but a goose just the same, was Jerry's plain sentiment. Connie Stevens, if you don't try for that part, I'll never speak to you again, threatened Muriel. I'll disown you, added Susan in mock menace. Connie, Marjorie's voice vibrated with sudden energy. I think you ought to try for the princess. I'm almost sure no other girl in Samford High can sing so beautifully. Then there is Laurie. He has always been nice to you. It would hurt his feelings dreadfully if you didn't try for a part in his operetta. Besides, I know it sounds hateful, but I can't help saying that I'd be glad to see you take the princess away from Mignon. That is, if she really stands a good chance of winning it. I suppose that is what Miss Archer would call an ignoble sentiment, but I mean it just the same. Marjorie glanced half defiantly around the bright circle. They were now in sergeants, seated about their favourite table. Hurrah for you, Marjorie, cried Jerry, flourishing her hand as though it were a pennant of triumph. That's what I say, too. You are really a human, everyday person after all. I used to think you were almost too forgiving towards certain persons, but now I can see that you aren't such a model forgiver after all. That is rather a doubtful compliment, isn't it? laughed Marjorie. Frankness is the soul of virtue, jeered Muriel. Oh, now you know what I mean protested Jerry, looking somewhat sheepish. You girls do like to tease me. All right, I'll do the forgiving act and order the refreshments. I'll pay for them too. I've a whole dollar. I'm supposed to buy some stationery with it, but I'll just let my correspondence languish and treat instead. Name your eat and you can have it. Fifteen cents apiece is your limit. I'll need the other ten to buy stamps. What is the use in buying stamps if you don't intend to correspond? Put in Irma mischievously. 
I might need them some day, was Jerry's calm retort. Besides, if I don't spend the ten cents, I may lose it. Now the Bureau of Information is closed. Order your fifteen cents worth. After changing their minds several times in rapid succession to the infinite disgust of the waitress, the sextet finally made unanimous decision for a new concoction in the way of a fruit lemonade known as Sergeant Nectar. Now, announced Jerry as the long-suffering waitress deposited the tall glasses on the table and retired to the back of the room to grumble uncomplimentary comments to a fellow worker on the ways of high school girls who didn't know their own minds. Let us all drink a toast to Miss Connie Stevens, the celebrated star of the rebellious princess. But remember, we can't drink until the star says she will shine. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, shall we see you from afar, on the Sanford stage so shy, for the fame of Sanford High? Who says I'm not a poet? Connie, you can't resist that poetic appeal, giggled Susan. Constance's blue eyes shone misty affection upon the circle of fresh, young faces, alight with the honest desire for her success. Her voice trembled a little as she said, "'I'll take it all back, girls. Now that I know just how you feel about the tryouts, I'd be an ungrateful girl to say I wouldn't do my best. I'll sing tomorrow, but if I'm not chosen, please don't be disappointed. To Connie, our princess, long may she warble.' Jerry raised her glass of lemonade. "'Drink her down.' End of chapter 23 Recording by Ashley Jane